Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 through 28. You can follow along behind me in your Bible app on your device or hard copy Bible in your pew, starting on page 825. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading of this word. I'd like to now invite Pastor Jeff, who will share on today's message titled, Servant-Hearted. So there's a movie with Will Ferrell that came out a long time ago. Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. It's one of those over-the-top comedy movies, and I recognize by mentioning the movie, I'm speaking to like a subsection of Crossbridge, like millennials and people who watch these kinds of movies. Ricky Bobby, uh, he's this character he, who is this NASCAR race car driver, and, and because it's a Will Ferrell movie, there's a lot of quotable lines. And one of those lines that gets said throughout, and is basically this character, Ricky Bobby's trademark saying, is this. If you ain't first, you're last. It's catchy, right? But it's also quite different from what Jesus says. Right? Ricky Bobby says, if you ain't first, you're last. Jesus says, if you are first, you're last. Or we could flip it around and say, if you want to be first, you got to be last. And so we get a sense of this juxtaposition in our passages today, which is going to reinforce our fourth core value. So as a quick review, we've been kind of going through this vision frame that we've been constructing week to week, talking about the different sides as we explore the sermon series of This Is Us, Discovering Our Crossbridge DNA. And so our mission at the very top of this vision frame, what do we do? Bridging cultures to build a family in Christ. This is how we, as Crossbridge, uniquely make disciples and glorify God. And then we go down one of the sides, our motives or our core values. Like, why do we do it? Well, because we're for God. We're scripture-driven. We're better together. And now our fourth and last core value, servant-hearted. What does this mean? It means that we seek to selflessly and sacrificially serve others like Jesus rather than to be served. 
So let's go to the Word. I invite you to, to get your Bibles, your Bible app, follow along. I, I know I usually have the scripture references on the slides behind me. I'll, I'll do that today as well. But you can see so much more of what's going on and what God is saying when you have His Word laid out in front of you. Much easier to follow along that way too. And so we're going to hit two passages today. Both are from the Gospels. Both are Jesus teaching his disciples and us about what it means to be servants. Matthew 20 and John 13. So in both of these passages, there's a, a common perspective, an attitude, a mindset, a value system that we have to hold and adopt and embody in order to be servant-hearted. And it's this. The way up is down. In Matthew, as we just read, we, we saw that the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, she goes to Jesus with a request. Not unusual yet. You know, how many of you have had parents who advocated for you? For those of you who are parents, I'm sure you guys have advocated for your kids before. And what we find here is this juxtaposition between what this mom is asking for, for her sons, and what she's really asking for, but doesn't quite know. On the one hand, she's asking for her, her sons to be able to sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. Right, the two most honorable positions. And she's calling dibs on these two seats for her two sons. And so remember, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He's, he knows that when he gets here, he's going to die on the cross. And everyone else thinks that he's going up there to usher in this earthly political kingdom in the heart of Israel. And so this mom's like, save my kids a spot. But instead, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And, and when he talks about this cup, it's this metaphor that gets used throughout the Old Testament that refers to suffering. And Jesus is like, that, that seat of honor is really a cup of suffering. There's a huge contrast and mismatch there in terms of understanding. It's not just the moms too, it's, it's the sons as well. Like we're not going to explicitly see this unless we read something like Old English with the these and thous and whatever. But the, the you that Jesus says when he says, you don't know what you're talking about, what you're asking for. It's a plural you. Meaning it's not actually just the mom who's making this request. It's the sons too. Maybe we can imagine like, Hey, Mom, can you, can you go to Jesus and just ask for us? We've been there. <laughs> but we don't need Greek to see this, right? Because we see that when they respond, it's the sons, not the mom, who answers Jesus' question. And so clearly from the start of this passage, we're presented with this family of a mom and her two sons who have high aspirations, high expectations of what success and status mean. They want to sit next to the Son of God in his kingdom. If you ain't first, you're last. And the other ten disciples, how do they respond? We read that they actually get indignant. They're jealous. Right? They're, they're kind of just upset that they weren't the first ones to yell shotgun to be in Jesus' passenger seat. Because for all of them, 
The way up is up. If you ain't first, you're last. And they weren't first, these ten disciples weren't first to reserve the seats with Jesus. But Jesus now understands, oh man, all of them don't know what they're talking about. So he takes this opportunity now, as he always does, to teach his disciples, his followers, about the values of his upside-down kingdom, about the way of living in submission and obedience to God, and that the way up is really down. So verse 25, Jesus called all of them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus is speaking to Jewish people living in Roman-occupied Israel. And so it's not just any rulers, but their current rulers that he's kind of pointing to as an example to this flawed, worldly, earthly way of thinking. He said, you know these guys. These people, these current rulers are ruling over you who believe that the way up is up, who, who believe in leading by lording it over them, who rule with domination and authoritarianism. And Jesus gives a clear, but this, it shall not be so among you. That's them. This is us. The way up is down. He continues, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And so if you want to be great, you got to be a servant. If you want to be first, you have to be a slave. Jesus is is painting this picture of this direction for us, right? The, The higher up you want to go, the further down you must go. If you want to be first, you got to be last. The second passage also gets at this too. John 13, 12 to 14. This is in the context of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And just before our passage, he, he takes off his outer garments and he puts on a towel and he dresses like the lowest of slaves, of servants, of the people who would normally wash people's feet. It, it, it's an extreme act of humility, right? Peers, even back then, rarely wash each other's feet. It's dirty, it's lowly, it's undignified. So if peers rarely wash, much less someone that that they would consider the Messiah and their Lord and their Savior. But this, this act of washing another person's feet, it's an act reserved for the lowliest of menial servants, And look, if the disciples, if they themselves were reluctant, like, look, Jesus, I don't know if I want to wash your feet, everyone would get it. They'd be like, totally understand. But Jesus, what he does is he reverses the roles. Again, he's turning everything upside down for us. He's turning and flipping upside down what is considered normal in that culture, in that environment that day. And he, he goes now. He gets down. And he washes the dirty, disgusting feet of each of his disciples. The passage says, When he had washed their feet, and he put on his outer garments back on, he resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought 
to wash one another's feet. And Jesus is pointing not just to the act itself, like, look, you have cleaner feet now, but to the meaning, the significance of what is happening here in, in, in his act. Like, do you guys understand what me washing your feet means now? He says, if Jesus, their Lord, their teacher, their master, washed his disciples' feet, then there's absolutely no reason why the disciples should not wash each other's feet now. So D.A. Carson said this, the heart of Jesus' command here in John is humility and helpfulness towards brothers and sisters in Christ. We sang about this. We talked about and sang about our humble king earlier. Like this is what it means to be servant-hearted as we kind of peel back the layers of, of this core value. It's a mindset that the way up is down. It's a posture of humility, of helpfulness to one another. And there's so many ways that we as Crossbridge live out this core value of being servant-hearted. Again, you know, our, our list of core values they should be kind of more actual values, less so aspirational. They might feel aspirational at times, but these are the things that really drive what we do here, drive why we make disciples, why we follow God, what flavors are the way we do our ministries here at Crossbridge. So there's many ways, I think. Members who have cooked meals Drop them off at other people's houses. I, I know there's many of you who have given up your own homes, your own beds for our returning missionaries who are on furlough and need a place to stay because they, they sold their homes to move overseas and when they come back, they don't have a place to live. Many of you are serving in a variety of different roles. You know, like whenever there's a need, I volunteer as tribute. Although that's probably I hope, not the best example because I hope our ministries aren't like the Hunger Games. But it's this picture, right, of being servant-hearted as being first responders. Right? People who are willing to arrive on the scene first to help. Like, how can I help? How can I help? And I want to drill in on that a little bit. Because our core value, let's, let's note this, that our core value is being servant-hearted. Not service-oriented. Not getting things done, not filling a gap, not doing more with less. The emphasis, first and foremost, is on the, our hearts. And why is that important? Because it matters what our motivations are, right? These are our core values. These are our motives, the, the second side of this vision frame. This is why we do these things. And so we can be serving and being successful and doing all these things and accomplishing so much, but for the wrong reasons. And the scary thing is people wouldn't even know. But to be servant-hearted implies serving, right? Because it would lead to that, but it means more than just serving. It's about serving selflessly or sacrificially. It's about having the heart of a servant. Right, so in Philippians 2, 1 to 4, Paul is writing to the Christians in, in Philippi. And he's urging them towards this kind of unity which is driven by humility. And he says there, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy 
by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. He says, count others more significant than yourselves. He says, don't look just at your own interests, your own concerns, but also to the concerns and interests of others. Like this is all heart work. And heart work is hard work. But this is at the core of what it means to be servant-hearted. And both of these passages in Matthew and John that we've been kind of working through has another common theme. It's not just that the way up is down, but also that Jesus serves and he serves as our example. So in Matthew, Jesus finishes out his whole point that of if you want to be first, you got to be last. Not what Ricky Bobby says, if you ain't first, uh, if you're, ain't first, you're last, right? But he says this. If you want to be first, you got to be last. And he says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And now in John, John 13, Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. And so in both cases, Jesus serves. He serves as a pattern of servant leadership. Like we are servant-hearted because Jesus is servant-hearted. We serve, hopefully, selflessly and sacrificially because Jesus did that first for us, for the world. Jesus served selflessly and sacrificially. He even says, you know, as he continues on in John, truly, truly, I say to you that a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So the point is that if Jesus our Lord and our Savior did this. How can we be exempt? Now, each week we've been pairing one of our missional motives. These core values with a missional mark. So, this is why we do it? Then, who are we becoming? How do we know that we're growing and maturing as we continue to participate and engage here as followers of Jesus here at Crossbridge. And so if we are servant-hearted, then let's be together serving with joy. I ask, do we serve out of obligation or do we serve out of joy? Let me pose an idea that I think is in Scripture. Can we do both? Is obligation the antithesis to joy? I don't think so, and I hope not, but I do recognize that sometimes it feels that way. We believe sometimes that duty and delight are at odds. And so we draw a false dichotomy that, look, if I feel obligated, I cannot feel joy, right? That it cannot be, I feel I have to do it, but only I have to feel that I want to do it. And that if I 
feel like I have to do it, it's bad. Like whatever it is, if I feel like I have to do it, it's got to be bad. But if I feel like I want to do it, it's good. But we know from Scripture that the heart is deceitful above all things. But look at how Paul describes uh, these faithful Gentile Christians in Macedonia and Achaia in Romans. These Christians were giving financially to aid the, the Jewish Christians in the church in Jerusalem who were poor or experiencing a famine. He says there, he writes, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also be, to be of service to them in material blessings. All right, so do you kind of catch what's, what Paul's getting at here? They owe it to them. Right, these Gentiles who have been grafted in to the people of God ought also to be of service to these fellow Jewish Christians who are experiencing hardship, obligation, Duty is what we, Paul's driving at here. And yet, at the same time, verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased, pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. Pleasure, desire, joy, delight. Here, in these few verses, we have both duty and delight in the same act of service. Here, you have them feeling both, I, I have to do it. I ought to do it. I have a call of duty. And I want to do it. I take great joy in doing it. I delight in it. So the idea here is that if we only feel that I have to do it, it's not bad. It's just incomplete. So we want to be servant-hearted. And that means serving. And that means also, hopefully, serving with joy. And both of these things emphasize, again, a heart check. right? Exploring really underneath all the things that we do, all the actions that we do every single day, what is our motive? Why are we truly doing it? Pastor Thabiti, and he lists out these seven attitudes that we need to be constantly checking ourselves with when it comes to being servant-hearted. And I love the way that he phrases it, so I'm just going to list them out directly. First, we need to be aware of an attitude that says, they're trying to get me to do something that I don't want to do. Like volunteer or attend. And, and he, he says that when we do that, we live as if my wants are most important. Second, we need to be aware of an attitude that says, they're trying to get me to give something I don't want to give. Like time or money or whatever it might be. He says, when we do that, we live as if my possessions are most important. Third, an attitude that says, I want to be known as a servant, even though I don't want to be treated as one. 
He says, when we do that, we live as if not being a nobody, but rather being a somebody is most important to us. Fourth, an attitude that says, I only want to serve the way I desire instead of serving where there's need. When we do that, we live as if our own sense of gratification and worth are most important. Fifth, an attitude that says, I only serve when I feel like it. He writes, when we do that, we live as if convenience is most important. Another one, an attitude that says, I only want to do what I think is in my ability or means. And then we live as if my comfort is most important. And lastly, an attitude that simply says, I. I live as if I am most important. And these things, I believe, stand in contrast to Jesus. Jesus, who served selflessly and sacrificially, who serves as our example of being servant-hearted. Jesus, who later on in the Philippians passage, put, Paul puts forth as our example, right? As our example to the very thing that, that he was saying first, right? Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others, right? That's not an I statement. He says, count others more significant than yourself. And then he says, look to Jesus. In Philippians 2, 5, 8, this is the NLT translation. He says, you must have the same attitude. Not these seven attitudes, but this attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and died a criminal's death on a cross. And so, Crossbridge, we are servant-hearted. I hope we we strive to be. And if so, let us also be serving with joy. I know that many of us, we feel duty-bound. Maybe that's just a part of who we are or how we're raised, our, our own internal DNA. But let us also be filled with delight. And that's hard. Hard work is hard work. So the question I leave you with this morning as we wrap up this fourth core value and this fourth mark is this. Where does my duty become my delight? As we reflect and we take the time to think about our own hearts, where does my duty become my delight? Where does my sense of ought also lead to my sense of want? Where does my service to God, to others, and to the church, though hard and difficult at times, how does it bring me great joy also at the same time? Because I'm realizing that God is at work and that I am part of something greater than myself. And others are knowing Jesus and experiencing his presence and his joy. And so let us continue to serve others like Jesus and with joy. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for you. Send your son, Jesus. He humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Because of him, we too can be transformed by your spirit through your word so that we too might serve others selflessly and sacrificially so that we can be more and more like Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.